Hey, it's Sarah. On this episode, I talk to ESPN investigative reporters John Barr and Dan Murphy about their new book, Start by Believing, which details the many red flags in the Larry Nassar sexual abuse case that were either missed or not reported. Take a minute to subscribe to this show so you don't miss any new episodes and preferably rate it five stars. Leave a review for That's What She Said with Sarah Spain on iTunes, the podcast app or wherever you listen to your podcast. Before we get to today's episode, I want to tell you about another great ESPN podcast, The Mina Kimes Show, featuring Lenny. This week, Mina kicks off her off-season coverage with ESPN's Field Yates. Where's Tom Brady going to play next year, and what do we make of the XFL so far? You can find The Mina Kimes Show wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm John Barr, and my dilemma is, should I drink the scotch that bears my name when I know it's no good? I'm Dan Murphy, and my dilemma is that I can't stand the bathroom attendants who try to help you wash your hands in fancy bathrooms. John, this is a simple one. No. Definitely not. If it's not good, you should definitely not drink it. But you should absolutely have a bottle prominently displayed on your liquor cart or cabinet. It's a fun thing. It's a cool thing to show guests. Maybe they would like it. Maybe they don't have as discerning of a palate as you do. Uh, But definitely don't drink it if it stinks. Uh, Just have a couple bottles around for the fun of it. And Dan... You know, I'm with you on this one. I don't really need you to hand me the paper towel that's an inch away from my hand so that I could be guilted away into giving you five bucks. But that being said, as a lady, maybe more so than a guy, sometimes they really come in handy. You need deodorant or gum or perfume or a safety pin, you know, any of the many party emergencies that you might face, they're there for you. And they're usually only at fancy places like, you know, fancy parties and restaurants. So if you can afford to be there, you could probably afford to throw them a few bones, uh, which is more difficult these days when you never carry around cash. But if you have it, you know, it's a tough gig. They're sitting in a bathroom all night. So, you know, throw them a bone. The commission has spoken. Hiring the right people is one of the best ways to help grow your business, but it shouldn't take time away from your other priorities. With LinkedIn Jobs, it doesn't have to. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for so you can hire the right person fast. Things like collaboration, creativity, adaptability. LinkedIn looks beyond the work skills and puts your job post in front of qualified candidates who match your business requirements perfectly. That's how LinkedIn makes sure your job post is seen by the people you want to hire. People with the skills, qualifications, and other interests that will help your business grow. It's no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn and why companies rated LinkedIn jobs, the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires. Find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash Sarah. Again, that's linkedin.com slash Sarah, S-A-R-A-H to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. That's what she said. My guests today are John Barr and Dan Murphy. John is a Peabody, Emmy, and National Edward R. Murrow award-winning journalist who used to read the front page of the newspaper in front of the bathroom mirror as a kid and dream of being a TV news anchor. Dan is a Peabody and IRE award winner who used to interview himself as a kid after imaginary basketball games in his basement. They're both part of ESPN's Investigations and Enterprise Unit, covering investigative and human interest features, mostly for Outside the Lines and E60. They've been on the Larry Nassar story since the beginning, and they have recently co-written 
written a new book called Start by Believing, Larry Nasser's Crimes, the Institutions that Enabled Him and the Brave Women Who Stopped a Monster. We talk about what they hope to accomplish with the book, the difficulty in interviewing victims and their families about the abuse that was suffered, why we victim blame in cases of domestic violence and sexual abuse, and what we all need to know about why predators seek out certain institutions and think they'll be protected. Uh, it's important, listen, to help us figure out how to change the culture in which these kind of crimes thrive. Um, it's tough. It's important stuff, and they cover it really smartly and thoroughly. So we owe it to the victims of Larry Nasser and other victims to learn how we can help. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. That's what she said. Super excited to have John Barr and Dan Murphy. They were on my radio show, Spain and Company, but we had such a short time to talk about this incredible book that I'm excited to get a, a little bit longer to dive into the process of writing it and, and what they hope people will gain from it. Uh, but we, of course, have to start by letting people know who you guys are and, and that you are not one amorphous being with four names that came together to create this. Uh, so, Dan, let's start with you. Um, where'd you grow up? What did you want to be when you were a kid? And how did you uh, matriculate your way to ESPN? Sure, yeah. I'll try to get through that as quickly as possible. This I grew up mostly in your in whole life story. <laughs> <laughs> Pennsylvania, Hartford, Connecticut were, were the two uh, most formative years of my childhood. Um, I, I remember... Uh, even as a 10 and 11 year old interviewing myself after my fake basketball games in the basement. So uh, covering sports has always been something high on my list and writing stories is always something high on my list. But uh, I went to Notre Dame and bounced around to a couple of different jobs that brought me from Perth, Australia to Molokai, Hawaii to Baltimore, um, eventually back to South Bend, Indiana, where I was a, a beat writer for a few years before I came to ESPN and I covered college football and a little bit of college hoops for ESPN for three or four years before I ran into this guy, John Barr, in uh, covering the Larry Nasser case. And that kind of changed my career a little bit to uh, focus more on investigative work and a little bit more of the off-the-field type of things that uh, have dominated headlines in college sports for the past few years. Yeah, I remember talking to you about the uh, the stuff with Zach Smith in Ohio State on my show, um, and that feels sort of like in the wheelhouse between the college football and the investigative stuff. Are you now altogether, you know, gone from any sort of regular coverage and on to the larger and deeper stories? Yeah, so this is this is the first year in a decade at least that I haven't been in the press box at a college football game, which my wife is very appreciative of. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean it's been a pretty easy transition and smooth transition where I did a little bit of both for a while, and and now I'm fully in the investigative group that we have at ESPN, and there's obviously plenty in the college sports world to to keep us busy there and keep it as a, a pretty fluid transition. You know, it's a very different beast covering sports from the perspective of this is an entertainment vehicle and something that we all come together and enjoy and then uh, kind of understanding the ways that it actually isn't beneficial to society or the people within it. What does that mean in terms of, you mentioned your wife, in terms of you taking the job home, the difference between going and writing a beat story on a game that just happened versus having to digest and, and really take in all the stuff that you've covered, whether it's NASA or other you know serious issues? Well, I, I think part of it is my career evolving a little bit because I didn't want I didn't want to leave all the other stuff out. You know, I think there's value in both things and the covering the entertainment value and the, the great stories in sports. But uh, I found it hard to ignore some of the things that need to be corrected and some of the voices that weren't being projected to the level that they should have been. So um, I think my own natural interests changed as I continue to cover this, and my career's kind of followed that path. Yeah. 
That makes sense. Absolutely. I do agree with you that even if you set out to hopefully describe it as entertaining and have the fun stuff, once you're introduced to some of the other stuff, it feels impossible to sort of just tamp it down and ignore it, um, especially if other people don't seem to be giving it the attention that it should get. So it is an interesting conundrum, I think, for a lot of people in the industry who maybe got in just because they loved sports and are are now seeing many sides of it that maybe they didn't know about. Um, John, tell us all about yourself. Wow. Okay. Well, I was born in London, Ontario. I'm born in Canada. Uh, moved to the States as a kid. Lived in New Hampshire, Indiana, and then moved back to Canada and finished high school. Went to the University of Toronto. And then when I was applying for grad schools, because I had previously lived in Indiana, I took a shot and applied to the Indiana University School of Journalism and managed to get in. Got my master's at IU. Uh, back when Bobby Knight was still there and the mm-hmm. program was still really relevant year in, year out. And then from there, uh, worked in local television, uh, bounced around smaller markets, uh, eventually went freelance briefly and did some work for the National Geographic Channel and Court TV. And then I did what a lot of people do in our business, and I got an agent. And uh, within a few weeks, he said, well, have you ever heard of a show called Outside the Lines? And that was back when Outside the Lines was going to a weekly show. It had been a monthly show. And it was a short time after that, in 2003, that I got hired by the Worldwide Leader. And I've kind of been here ever since and done a little bit of everything. Uh, but fairly early on, gravitated towards the longer form stuff. And that's kind of where I've been since uh, the mid-2000s. I was looking at your many different reporting stops and they all, you can tell, are, you know, local stops because they've all got the WBFF, WHTL, oh, yeah. WTHI. <laughs> I mean, you were all over the place in Indiana and Baltimore and Minneapolis. Uh, did you, at the time, hope to work towards sort of investigative and long form? Or in that point in your career, were you happy and, and satisfied with, with doing the, the local reporting? Yeah. So I always kind of gravitated to stations that actually had a long form unit. So it was always part of, of my hope to eventually land a gig like that at the network level. Uh, I a- actually thought for many, many years it would be in news. And, uh, you know, I wound up at ESPN working for what was really the closest thing to a news magazine on a sports network and outside the line. So, yeah, I, I wanted to do that very early on. And like Dan, I, I played uh, news reporter. <laughs> I guess he played sports reporter as a kid. I played news reporter as a kid. Uh, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it now, but I would take the front page of the Indianapolis Star, you know, years and years ago and read it in front of the bathroom mirror and pretend I was Taylor Jennings. But it didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, uh, I think we all had sort of those hokey little moments in private. Um, I, re- I remember taking the PSAT you know, not the SAT, but the prep yeah. for it. And you could check a little box next to what you wanted to be. And I distinctly remember in high school in Indiana checking journalist. And I really knew that I wanted something about it. I just knew I wanted to be in broadcasting as well. So I guess I knew what the heck I wanted to do because I wound up doing it. Yeah, I love that. So I know, Dan, you mentioned that you interviewed yourself after an imaginary basketball game. Did you play any sports? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was a. Uh... Of football, ended up playing hockey and baseball, football in, in high school. And then uh, once I got to college, I actually was a boxer for a couple of years and realized wow. uh, when I couldn't really compete in sports anymore that it was time to start writing about them, basically. 
Okay, now we're learning stuff I didn't even know. Did you have a nickname? <laughs> For a brief period, I was, uh, I don't know if we can even put this on the podcast, so I, I'll leave it up to your editing discretion, but the Irish virus was my nickname for a year or two in, uh, in college boxing. <laughs> Irish virus. Oh, no. <laughs> you, realize, you realize that's basically what I'm going to call you now. From Yeah. Like, now, you know, <laughs> I may no never choice. live that one down. I probably should have yeah. kept that to myself. But, yeah, but, yeah I'm no going to be honest, transparent. <laughs> uh, John, did you play any sports? I did. I played I played football. I played rugby. I played football in both the United States and Canada, which was wow. international. I, I remember. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember playing high school football in Canada for the first time and walking out onto the field and thinking, "Damn, this field is big." Because <laughs> you know it's it's just longer, and the touchdown yeah. the uh, the end zones were longer. And uh, playing up on offense, as we would pronounce it, north of the border was boring as heck because a lot of times it just consisted of two plays punt because it was three downs. So, yeah, it was uh, kind of an adjustment to deal with like 12 guys instead of 11 and three downs and a bigger field and all that stuff. But I played uh, football and rugby, played some uh, baseball, not competitively, and now I am a really lousy men's league hockey player. Oh, love it. Love it. The beer leagues. Um, All right, so you guys have a lot in common, and yet I think you're – Different ages, right? Different generations. Yeah, Dan's. A I will point out that uh, when John joined ESPN, I think I was either a sophomore or junior in high school, just to make him feel a little bit old. Okay, perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we have slight age differences here, but um, but very similar backgrounds and and desires in terms of coverage. So um, let's talk about that. And also a fun fact, uh, which should, must be mentioned very early. Dan Murphy's is an Australian liquor superstore, and John Barr is a Scotch whiskey, which was the aforementioned whiskey in John's Dilemma, which is a match made in heaven. I mean, you guys were meant to come together and find each other. I, I imagine that John Barr might even be sold at a Dan Murphy. So um, coming together to create something was a no-brainer. But I wonder, John, were both of you working on the Larry Nasser story independently, or did one person start it? How did the, How did you both end up covering this? Yeah, so I, I started covering it uh, really in September of 2016, shortly after the very first story came out in the Indianapolis Star. I think the first story that I reported for ESPN was in early October of 2016 when an anonymous gymnast who we now know was former national team member Maddie Larson filed a lawsuit. and She was the first person to file a lawsuit and specifically named Bella and Marta Caroli, you know, the famed coaching couple who put their stamp on Olympic gymnastics in this country for so many decades. Um, so it was back then that developments were just happening seemingly daily in this story. And I started to see this uh, guy, Dan Murphy, who I previously knew as a big 10 reporter picking up elements of the story because a lot of them were happening in Michigan. And I happened to be based just outside of Philadelphia and I really didn't know Dan, but it wasn't, long before we were uh, communicating back and forth and effectively working in tandem on the story. And we've kind of been doing it ever since. It's an incredibly difficult story to wrap your head around, um, even from the beginning it was. But then as the thread sort of unravels and you realize how long there were accusations against him, how many people were told something and either ignored or chose not to report it or even tried to spin it as something that the girls must be lying about, um, it gets sort of even harder to digest. 
Um, there has been some justice in the form of jail time uh, for life for Larry Nasser, but there are so many other people involved in this that have not yet really been held accountable for their role. And I wonder if that is part of the reason for this book, Dan. Is it that you've you've reported on it, but there's just more to tell? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the so the sentencing hearings where Larry Natcher was sentenced to it was up to 175 years in prison. That was the the main one that a lot of people paid attention to. Were in January 2018, and I think that's when um, most of the world that's aware of that story became aware of it was because it was kind of a a viral moment in the courtroom. Um, and John and I have been covering it for you know for more than a year at that point. John for 15, 16 months, and. I think a couple months after that settled down, we had a couple conversations with each other and decided that there was so much that happened that led up to those moments that people might not understand uh, how much hard work and perseverance went into getting into that courtroom. So we wanted to to tell that story and explain to people how hard and rare that that moment of justice and validation was for those women. And then also explain all of the things they had to overcome, which were the enablers, which were the, the whole culture and system that allowed Nasser to get away with this, that we felt that if you weren't paying close attention for a long time, you may not have fully understood. Well, and that's part of it, of course, right, that it would be easier and more palatable to believe that this terrible person had been caught and that meant it was the end of this. But really, what's the larger conversation is not just about Larry Nasser, but what is the culture that we live in that allows for things like this to go on all over the place beyond just Michigan State and gymnastics? Um, John, you, you named the book Start by Believing, and it is Larry Nasser's crimes, the institutions that enabled him and the brave women who stopped a monster. But tell me about Start by Believing and why that, that's the name you went with. Well, Rachel Den Hollander was the first uh, woman to come forward and publicly accuse Larry Nasser of sexual assault when she filed a police report with the Michigan State Police uh, back in August of 2016. Uh, and when she had her first meeting with uh, Detective Lieutenant Andrea Munford, at the end of the meeting, Munford had a small slip of white paper on which she took down Rachel's contact information. And on the top of that slip of white paper, she wrote the words, start by believing. And when we heard that anecdote, we thought, well, this would be a perfect title for a book. And that story alone made it a perfect title for a book. So, you know, Dan and I did what you would do in a situation like that. We Googled the word Start by Believing to see if mm-hmm. anybody else had a book named Start by Believing or, you know, just what would come up. And it turns out there's a very uh, established program called Start by Believing. It was started by a woman named Joanne Archambault, who's with the group End Violence Against Women International. They they do training and advocacy work on behalf of survivors of sexual assault. And, um, and the whole point of the program is when sexual assault survivors are greeted with skepticism by law enforcement, by their families, by society at large, they're denied an opportunity to heal. And when all of those entities can greet sexual assault survivors from a position of believing uh, it just makes for much better outcomes. And so we were thrilled. We kind of had a little bit of moment of uh, doubt, not knowing if the group would embrace the title of our book, but we reached out and they wholeheartedly embraced the title. And we're just thrilled that naming our book, Start by Believing, can, you know, by extension, bring some great attention to the, to the work that they do. I wrote a story about why we victim blame surrounding Larry Nasser, but the larger conversation. And, and, and really, it was inspired by conversations that I have on social media that disappoint me so much because of the 
immediate response that people have to not believe uh, women when it comes to issues of domestic violence and sexual assault. And I wanted to understand why people would feel that way. And fascinatingly, there's actually a, a pretty widely known theory that's called the just world fallacy, which is the idea that if you believe that people who follow the rules and are good people, they will not have bad things happen to them. And so if you don't make the same quote unquote mistakes as the people who are subject to this cruelty, then you won't face the same fate. Um, it, of course, isn't true. There are plenty of good people doing all the right things that still suffer terrible tragedies and cruelty. Um, but it's a, it's a safe place for people to go instead of believing that the world is unfair. And, and you, could, you can be subject to some of these things regardless of your actions. When, Dan, you're, you're writing about the culture that this exists in and why it's so important to start by believing, what other reasons have you heard or explanations for why in our society we have a tendency to victim blame and to go to that first? Yeah, I think that's a great question and one that we wrestled with a lot in writing the book. And I think there's, you know, within the sports world, there's definitely just this sense of tribalism, I think, that rears its head very quickly. And people never give it a second thought if you come after their team or their community or, or whoever it might be. But one of the things that, that we came across beyond that, is I, especially with sexual abuse and, and crimes that are sort of unthinkably heinous and ugly, is that we want to believe in, you know, similar to what you just said, we want to believe in the, in the goodness of other people. And it seems illogical that someone could be that evil. So if we're presented with an alternate plausible solution of what may have actually happened, we tend to think in that way. And I think if Larry Nasser was a master at anything, it was in giving people a plausible excuse for what he was doing, whether that was coaches or medical personnel or trained police investigators or the gymnasts themselves, he found ways to give people another reason, another way to look at what he was doing and an option to think that maybe it wasn't the worst possible scenario. Yeah, and I think you mentioned also in sports specifically, there is this desire to believe that if someone has achieved a lot at something, their celebrity in music or sports or otherwise, that that must mean also that they're a good person and that we feel like we know them so that we want to believe them more than whoever the anonymous person is who is who is accusing them of something. And how do you even express to someone sort of the illogical nature of that, John, the idea that you that you know that someone is a good person simply because they're good at sports? Well, look, if you, I mean, if you're applying that example to the case of Larry Nassar, I mean, he, he also had the power of the white coat, right? He had the power right. of the medical profession. And, and there's just this unbelievable instinct in all of us to trust doctors. And that was by no means the only thing he used to manipulate uh, girls and young women and their parents and coaches and really everybody. He also used the force of his personality, and his personality was very non-threatening. He was kind of goofy. He was the guy who was the friendly person, the, the friendly ear in these gyms where the coaches were often abusive and, and ruled the roost uh, through intimidation and fear. Um, he was the guy who brought gymnasts who were denied food and who were afraid to eat. Uh, he brought them snacks. So... The, the interesting thing, and it was kind of a fascinating thing, it was to hear so many survivors of Larry Nassar talk about how they loved him and how a part of them still loves him today. And there's sort of this dichotomy where he could be that person and simultaneously 
be this monster who did heinous things to them, and he could be both of those things at the same time. I'm not so sure that answers your question, but that yeah. it was sort of an interesting storyline to explore in our reporting. Yeah. yeah, and Dan, I think part of that is too kind of the heartbreak that a lot of us felt for the gymnasts who said they didn't even really understand that they were being abused until others came out and spoke out about it. And then they reflected on their own experiences with Larry Nasser and realized that they too had been victims. Do you get into that in the book? And, and how difficult is it to talk to someone about those moments of realization and, and the complicated feelings that they might have about Larry and this love they still have for him despite knowing what he'd done? Yeah, and I think that speaks a bit to just how convincing of a manipulator he was. It wasn't just people that had heard complaints and decided to ignore them. He convinced the women that he was assaulting, that he wasn't assaulting them. Um, and a lot of it is because of that, the facade he built up. And some of the most heartbreaking interviews that, that I did, John and I did, were were athletes that felt something must be wrong here, but they believed so much in who Larry was and his expertise as a doctor, that they felt if something was wrong, something must be wrong with them. And for years, they carried this guilt that they, for some reason, were dirty or had unclean thoughts. And this was a problem that they had to deal with. And yet, like mm. you said, it wasn't until these reports became public that people fully realized the roots of some of these both mental health issues they were having. And some of them manifested as, as physical health problems because they just didn't fully understand what had happened to them at that point. Well, and Dan, the the parents too, right? And, and some some of the stories about parents who were in the room and were blocked either by Nasser or, or screens or other things, but were technically in the room with their daughters while they were being abused and how we would use that on both ends. The daughter would say, well, my mom's right there, so this must be fine. And the parent would say, my daughter seems fine, so nothing must be going on besides a regular routine uh, treatment. Those interviews, I imagine, would be tough too for the guilt that they might feel and not having known what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, those were some of the toughest ones, um, speaking to a couple of different parents. I remember John and I sitting at a, at a coffee shop, a Panera coffee shop in Kalamazoo, Michigan, talking to Rachel Ben Hollander's parents, uh, you know, long after all this had become public and, and you know, us all kind of struggling as, as Rachel's dad fought back tears, um, explaining his own guilt that he still held on to after all these years for not fully understanding what was going on. And, um, you know, there were a lot of examples like that that we got into in the book. You know, one of them is a woman named Kyle Stevens, who wasn't even an athlete, who for years and years, her father was convinced that something must have been wrong with Kyle because they knew Larry Nasser and he would never have done this. And um, eventually, you know, this guy had some other issues that he was working through. But Kyle told us that eventually that that was a, a big factor in her father's decision to to eventually end his own life and died by suicide a few years mm -hmm. after he accepted the fact that his daughter had been abused by someone he considered a good friend. I remember that meeting in the coffee shop with the Den Hollanders, and that was really fairly early on, I think, Dan, in, in our research for the book. And, you know, we, in, in many ways, we've been doing the research for months with our reporting, but, you know, when we kind of officially knew that we were going to be doing a book, and I, I just remember walking out of there that night uh, with this, you know, you just, felt this incredible sense of gratitude for them for taking the time, but your heart just ached for these folks. You know, it, it, I can't imagine as, as a parent, what it must be like knowing that, you know, you took your child to a doctor thinking that you were getting them treated, making them well. And then something like this happens. I, I mean, the, the feeling of guilt must be uh, 
I, I can't even begin to fathom what they must be going through. John, you know, you mentioned some of the qualities about Larry Nassar that allowed him to individually get away with it or manipulate people, whether the victims themselves or those around him. Let's speak to the larger enabling of others and maybe via a couple examples. I know the first reporting or complaints were in the 90s, right, which is heartbreaking to hear when you realize that this abuse was still occurring in 2015, 2016. But are there moments where there were some real opportunities for this to come out and people completely mishandled the reporting and the claims from some of the girls? Sarah, as I talk to you now, I'm, I'm in Lansing covering the trial of former Michigan State University gymnastics coach Kathy Clagus. And, you know, she was told, according to Larissa Boyce and another gymnast who's remained anonymous throughout this entire affair, she was told by those two former youth gymnasts in 1997, according to them, that they were sexually assaulted by Larry Nasser during purported treatment sessions. Both of the women say that they told Clegus that they were penetrated by Nasser during treatment sessions at Jenison Fieldhouse on the campus of Michigan State University. One of these former gymnasts, Larissa Boyce, was 16 at the time. The other gymnast who hasn't identified herself was 14. And so they both shared this with Kathy Clegus, they say, on the same day back in 1997. Kathy Clegus didn't even notify their parents. Kathy Clegus mm. didn't report it to anybody. There's no, there's nothing we found that suggests she reported it up the chain. And now she's on trial for two counts of lying to police because when investigators questioned her about any prior knowledge about Larry Nasser touching gymnasts inappropriately during medical uh, treatment sessions, Clegus said no. And she now is facing up to four years in prison for two counts of lying to police. So, and that was just the first, that was just the first time. There was another case in 1998 involving a softball player. There was a case involving a cross country runner. There was a case involving a rower. There was a police report filed in 2004 that Larry Nasser explained away. There was another police report filed in 2014 and on and on and on. Kyle Stevens is yet another example. She was examined by a psychiatrist from Michigan State University. So there were a number of examples where he could have been stopped, he could have been caught, and he wasn't. And, and people either looked the other way or they didn't believe what these women were telling them. Dan, what did these people say to explain why they would not report, why they wouldn't believe them? What, what are their own personal responses, if there are any, as to why they wouldn't even go to the parents of the kids who have done this? Yeah, there's a mixture. Some of them will kind of play dumb and pretend that, you know, or, you know, they claim that they, they don't recall this ever happening or they don't think that they were ever a part of any of these conversations. Some of them will say that they heard the complaints and they, you know, some of the police that investigated it spoke directly to Larry Nassar and he explained it away using medical jargon and some of the things he talked about. And they were uh, impressed by his own credentials and, and what he had done in his career. And because of that, believed him over the voice of these women. And one of the things, you know, there were times when there was three different groups investigating him at the same time, the FBI, some police in Michigan, and the Michigan State University Title IX office. And, you know, there, there was all these red flags that when you put them one after another, uh, it becomes really, really obvious what had happened. And part of the issue here was all those groups weren't communicating, and there was no way of knowing how many missed signs there were. You know, when he's interviewed by police in 2014, he brings up on of his own to the police officer. It's amazing that after 20 years of doing this, I've never received any other complaints. 
the police officer didn't know at the time how wrong that was. But part of the, the problem here was just the siloed lack of communication with all these different organizations that he worked for. Had someone been able to put some of these pieces together, it might have been much easier to find out what was going on sooner. John, beyond what they say about, you know, Larry convincing them otherwise or excuses that they have, what reasons do you think the many different people who were presented with this information had to not do something about it? Well, like Kathy Clegas' example, uh, you know, she was a personal friend of Larry Nasser. She let her own children get treated by Larry Nasser. Her, her son's daughter was treated by Nasser. So, you know, I just don't think she allowed herself to believe that her friend, a guy who she she knew as a volunteer athletic trainer when he showed up at a gym in the late 80s in the Lansing area called Great Lakes Gymnastics. Kathy was a coach back then. Larry was a student, um, a medical school student and uh, a volunteer athletic trainer. And she just wouldn't allow herself, to, I believe, she wouldn't allow her mind to accept the fact that he could do something to harm a kid. But what I can't accept is the idea that a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old would both come into her office on the same day, if, if you believe the accounts of these women, and we found them to be credible, how could you go through that experience and not at a minimum say to their parents when they're picked up that day, hey, we had sort of a disturbing conversation today with your daughters, and here's right. what was said. You know, I, I just can't believe it didn't even get to that level. Uh, but in Kathy Clegas' example, it was a personal connection. Uh, Dan referenced, you know, the first police report that was filed in 2004. In that instance, Nasser did use a very detailed and confusing, if you, you aren't familiar with that part of the body, medical explanation to explain it away. And his employer was never aware of, of that we found nothing to indicate that his employer was ever aware of that police report that was filed in 2004. In 2014, when he was accused, not by an athlete, but by a patient named Amanda Tomashow of sexual assault during medical treatment, you know, that case launched a Michigan State University police investigation, a, a Title IX investigation. And at that time, Nasser was instructed by the dean of his school of osteopathic medicine and told in bullet point fashion, you are not to have skin to skin contact with patients. You're, you should have another adult chaperone in the room. If you're going to perform anything even close to that area, you have to give a full explanation to the patient. And nobody ever followed up to see if he was following any of those protocols. Mm. And what we now know is that he continued to sexually assault women to see them alone without an adult chaperone present between 2014 and 2016 when he was ultimately fired by the school and arrested. So, you know, it was a combination of not allowing themselves to believe the worst and, frankly, willful neglect of duty. And the dean of the School of Osteopathic Medicine was paying a price for that. He went to prison. He was the first person in the ripple effect of this criminal case to actually go to prison, not named Larry Nasser. One of the things that we came across in reporting the book was with USA Gymnastics and the U.S. Olympic Committee when they became aware that there were some pretty credible claims made against Larry Nasser toward the end of all of this. They sat on them for, and I think people started thinking about their legal liability and the public relations message and how it might play from that perspective. 
And because of that, didn't speak up. So we came across some some pretty explicit examples of people thinking about protecting the brand of USA Gymnastics over protecting the women themselves that they were supposed to be taking care of. Uh, And because of that, again, it was another 11 months that he was allowed to see and abuse patients. Yeah, I want to get to that in just one moment. Um, John, you did mention the legal repercussions for some Are there many examples in which the people who are involved were mandatory reporters or legally required to say something, and even in the face of that legal requirement, chose not to? Yes. And in fact, the the story that really brought the Larry Nassar scandal to light was a wonderful expose that was done by the Indianapolis Star that predated their their first Nassar story. They did a story about how USA Gymnastics, over the course of years, had a long history of taking reports of coaches who'd been, you know, allegedly sexually abusive toward gymnasts and essentially taking those reports and sticking them in a drawer in a file cabinet in Indianapolis. They did not report those uh, reports from gymnasts and their parents to the proper authorities. And it was after that story came out that Rachel Den Hollander, you know, read the Indianapolis Star, contacted the reporters and said, hey, have you, ever, you guys ever looked into Larry Nasser?" The reality is that organization had a very twisted sense as to what constituted the correct procedure to report child sex abuse. Their policy, their standing policy, for, it wasn't written anywhere, but it was their understanding that unless it was the victim herself, him or herself, or somebody who witnessed it, that they were not obligated to report it. And Mm. there was one deposition I read where an attorney for the survivors was questioning an official with USA Gymnastics, and he asked the official, how many sexual assaults involving children are you aware of that are witnessed? And the person couldn't answer. I mean, it's a ridiculous standard. The reality is, if you have a reasonable suspicion you are obligated to report either to law enforcement or child protective services. The sad thing is that the statute of limitations on failure to report for so many of these cases has run. So the former leader of USA Gymnastics, Steve Penny and other top officials, Kathy Clagus, people like that can't be prosecuted for failure to report. So they are prosecuting them, but for other offenses. You know, one of the things that's come up a lot in the reporting and discussing of this story is the problems that USA Gymnastics has had for years, whether it comes to body image or physical treatment of of young athletes. And I think the climate in which this kind of abuse occurs is it's not just sports and it's not just gymnastics. It's the military and, and churches and all sorts of institutions where protection of the brand and the idea of the brand becomes sort of more important to people than individual morality and understanding of, of individual circumstances. But I do think in this case, it probably would have ended earlier. Would it have not been for this already being a, a USA gymnastics and an Olympics organization that we're used to sort of covering things up and, and turning away from criticism. Dan, it, it feels like there were examples of other people brought in even before Nasser to work on issues that were you know being reported or claimed within gymnastics, and, and those people were treated very similarly to people who complained about Nasser. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the first people that we reached out to when we got into the weeds of reporting the book is a, a woman named Joan Ryan, who's a terrific journalist and author in her own right. She wrote a book 
back in the mid-90s that highlighted a lot of the uh, abusive things going on in both gymnastics and figure skating called Little Girls in Pretty Boxes. And for a while, that created some waves and created some momentum toward change. Um, and they even started an athlete wellness program in the late 90s that was just kind of taking off with a, a mentorship program and giving athletes an option that, where they can feel a little more safe speaking out about what's going on with them. And then they had a couple bad performances in a row at the, the World Championships in gymnastics and the 2000 Sydney Olympics didn't quite live up to their hopes. So the idea of needing to win and, you know, as, as a result of that being more marketable and, and bringing in more money, um, you know, while there's no direct line there, as soon as they started to struggle, the focus shifted back from let's try to work on athlete wellness to let's give as much power as we can to the folks that were creating better results uh, earlier on, which is the, the Corollis. And the Corollis did not seem to be in favor of that athlete wellness program. And it, it withered on the vine at that point. And, you know, John and I both, you know, John spoke with a woman named Nancy Thies Marshall in our reporting who was running that program for a long time. And, and John, I correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think she basically told you that she wonders what would have happened if, if maybe that program had a longer life and was able to really dig its root, roots into the USA gymnastics programming. Yeah, basically her budget was slashed in half, and, and she, she, Nancy Thies Marshall is a former Olympian. She was part of the 1972 Olympic team, and when her budget was cut, when she was told her budget was cut, and it was cut by a guy named Bob Colorossi, who was the predecessor to Steve Penny, who is, is the, the guy who, uh, who's most talked about with respect to the enabling of Larry Nassar. Uh, but Bob Colorossi let her know that the budget was being cut, and she basically said, I quit. You know, I'm not going to be your token Olympian to, you know, be here and put the public face on that you guys care about athlete wellness when you really don't. And, uh, you know, this mentorship program that was uh, one of her ideas, uh, she had high hopes for it. The idea was that an older former national team member would serve as a mentor to the current national team members, kind of in a big sister type role. And she can't help but wonder, you know, if perhaps, a victim of Larry Nassar might have confided in their mentor, you know, if that program would have taken root and really flourished, you know, she'll never know the answer to that, but she's really troubled by the question. When you brought up things like the military and other places, one of those other things that they, these all have in common is you've got a whole bunch of ambitious, really high achieving people all underneath a, a really restrictive power structure. And there's such a great power imbalance from people who all want to climb that ladder where you have to be respectful or, or kowtow to those people who are in power. And when you have that type of structure set up, it's really hard to feel like you can go out on your own and say something that might be going against the current of what you hear most of the time. So I think a lot of these gymnasts were afraid to speak up. And maybe if they had an option to do that in a little bit safer environment, things would have been a little bit different. Look, it just begs the question, would, would, would a gymnast have said something to the mentor about Larry Nasser? Hey, you know, this doctor, he, you know, I just don't think the way he's treating us is right. You know, maybe, maybe a conversation like that happens in 2001, 2002. Yeah. And hundreds of women don't get sexually assaulted. Maybe. I mean, we'll just never know. Right, because those mentors could have gone to the very same people looking for help and, and been shouted down or, or convinced otherwise, just like the others. Um, although you'd like to hope if there was a, a system in place that better allowed for people to be working there whose whose goal was not 
uh, uh, the same as everyone else. Was not the medals and the money and everything else. Was the goal was the the treatment of the girls. Then that yeah, that might have offered something different. Just to put a you know one one other thing for fodder, USA Gymnastics recently announced that they hired the first ever vice president for athlete wellness. Well, Nancy Thies Marshall was called the vice chair of athlete wellness back in the mm. mid-90s. So when I reached out to her about that, she had a very bittersweet chuckle at the notion that they are now calling this the first vice president. The reality is they started an athlete wellness program, and they slashed the funding for it, and she quit as a result. Uh, they made a conscious decision in the late 90s, early 2000s to steer away from it and to put more of an emphasis on winning. And, yeah. and we know the result. And to use a different name intentionally so that you can't go back and find that there was someone in that position before and what happened. Yeah, it's just workplay. It. It's just yeah. workplay. That's not surprising, though, right, uh, John? Considering what we've seen in the aftermath of Larry Nasser, the failed hirings, the, the attempts to bring in someone new who immediately publicly says the wrong thing. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because, you know, I know the book is out now. You could write another book based solely on the things that are going to keep happening in this case as it goes on, but, you know, within the last year or two, how has USA Gymnastics handled the aftermath of this? Well, Dan and I have kind of joked a little bit that the more that stuff happens, the more we have to add stuff to our epilogue. And there was a time when our epilogue just kept growing and growing and growing. And, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, USA Gymnastics has had a horrible run at public relations, uh, there was basically a revolving door at the top after Steve Penny stepped down uh, and got a very generous million-dollar-plus golden parachute on his way out the door. Uh, they had uh, a revolving door of CEOs. You know, they've stabilized in terms of leadership, but from a financial standpoint, they're a mess. They're in bankruptcy court right now. As part of that bankruptcy court proceeding, the organization recently offered a $250 million settlement to the survivors, there are some 511 survivors of Larry Nassar who have outstanding civil lawsuits against USA Gymnastics, and those civil lawsuits are sort of in limbo until the bankruptcy proceeding resolves itself. But you know, this organization is a mess. Uh, I mean, it's it's a mess financially. You know, I guess I, I do credit the organization for uh, taking steps in recent weeks and months to establish an athlete wellness program. They hired a woman named Kim Krantz, who's got very impressive credentials. She's got, you know, a long history in sports nutrition and has an emphasis on positive coaching. And so those are all good things. And you you would hope that that might trickle down to the organization as a whole. But there are some 200,000 members of USA Gymnastics in gyms across the country. So you have these gyms that are registered as USA Gymnastics gyms, and they have, you know, athletes who train there, coaches who coach there, who are all members of USAG. But the reality is USA Gymnastics is a pretty small organization based in Indianapolis. And, you know, the idea that they can adequately police everything that goes on inside all of those gyms is kind of ludicrous. And that's really the case for most national governing bodies. You know, they don't, they just don't have the staff to really keep tabs on what goes on inside all of the facilities that they're responsible for. This story obviously will still go on. You're reporting on on Kathy Clage's trial right now, um, but the book is out and, and, it, and it encapsulates a whole bunch of what has already happened. 
Dan, what's the goal with the book, other than, of course, to tell the stories that weren't able to be told in the ESPN reporting, but what do you want people to take from it? I think we wanted to, when you put everything in one place at the same time, it, it paints a picture that you might not get over the few years of all of I mean, there was a ton of great coverage and a ton of great journalism that helped bring this case to fruition. And I think uh, we wanted to, if nothing else, put everything in one place so that people could see it and understand the impact of the full thing. And we also wanted to take a step back and explain the culture of the sport and sporting world that led to these problems so that maybe there's some lessons to learn along the way. But ultimately, as you mentioned, you know, I, I think to me and, and to John as well, that the most important thing for us was doing justice to the women who finally stood up and took this power back, right? Which, when we thought about the book, we thought about it in sort of three phases. One, the, how power kind of conglomerated around a certain group of people, what they did to try to hold on to that power, and then finally how it was taken away from them. And we wanted to make sure that we really did justice to just what a feat of courage it was and how hard it was to wrestle that power away. And it, it was worth a story worth telling in our mind. John, how do you pay it forward in in someone who's interested in this story or, or reads this book? Um, I went to speak at a charity event for the Detroit Lions that they do every year, and the proceeds go to a local domestic violence home and, and safe space for, for women and children as they leave uh, abusive relationships. And I was going to be more lighthearted, and after listening to the stories of everyone there, I instead spent my time kind of telling everybody there that showing up to charity events and speaking the right words about these things is not nearly enough. If there are moments in our own lives where we have the ability or opportunity to speak up against something that we think is going on or to point out something within an organization that means a lot to us, an institution, whether it's our church or our school or our family, that we are obliged to do so because we need people out there to do that. Because if not for these young women and somehow getting the word to someone who believed them and was willing to give them an ear and, and support them, he might still be doing this. I, I just I think that's a big leap for some people. They can see something that's wrong, but the fear of actually being the one to say something or do something about it is crippling. If someone is reading this book and, and thinking about that, how do we actually pay this forward and, and make it so that we don't just solve the Nasser case, but we change the way we view these things going forward? Well, a couple things come to mind. I mean, there are a number of states that, frankly, don't have very favorable laws on the books with respect to child sex abuse victims. There are states that in recent months have extended the statute of limitations so that when adults who realize and come to grips with the fact that they were sexually abused years earlier can get some recourse in the civil courts and in the criminal courts. But there are there's still a lot of work to be done on that front. And then just, you know, I think acting locally is always a good thing. You know, I'm, and I'm not saying this for any motivation to reach around and pat myself on the back. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm happy that Dan and I were able to write this book and, and bring attention to a lot of these issues. Um, we have a, an event in my neck of the woods, which I don't know, in keeping with our alcohol theme from off the top, mm -hmm. is, ha is happening at a local tavern that happens to be owned by a couple of guys I know. But, you know, I didn't want this to be a situation where people were showing up to getting signed books, thinking that it's going in my pocket. So I reached out to the Child Advocacy Center in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, which is where I live. And, you know, this is an organization that basically came around as a result of the Sandusky case. And these are the folks who do the forensic interviews with kids who are victims of child sex abuse and child physical abuse. 
you know, they're, they're trained forensic investigators who greet these kids and deal with these families at, you know, just the lowest points of their lives. And uh, they help, they can't make the case for the police, but they can guide police in terms of their investigation. And, you know, it was pretty sobering for me to hear from a woman who ran the Child Advocacy Center in my own county that they deal with about 400 families a year. And uh, a lot of those families come from the police department that's right down the road from where I live. And so when you hear that, you realize, uh, you know, this is a real problem, and it's a real problem in my your own backyard. And you can do something about it. So we're happy to donate all proceeds from the books that we sign at, at this event to uh, to the Child Advocacy Center of uh, Delaware County, and, and hopefully we'll be in a position to do more of that. You know, one of the things that you mentioned, Sandusky, that people, I think, um, need to understand is that oftentimes, according to experts, uh, predators actually seek out places where they can count on the protection of, of the loyalty of the people who support it, whether it is a college or the military or a professional league. And people would rather protect the integrity of that institution, even maybe not you know consciously, perhaps subconsciously that becomes more important to them than understanding the, the details of the specifics. But I think laying out the specifics of this case and in detail talking about the human beings behind what became sort of a salacious headline-grabbing story um, hopefully will help people to connect with the actual human beings involved and not just the larger issues of pedophilia or sex crimes. Um, but it's a lot to digest, and I wonder for both of you, as you have now spent years on this, John, you know, has it changed the way that you see the world around you? Has it has it been difficult for you at times in terms of taking the work home? How has it been for you just covering this for several years? You know, it's hard. Look, I mean, uh, I've, I read somewhere years ago that, you know, that reporters were supposed to be these detached uh, observers. You know, I, I just, good luck with that. You know, good good luck with that when you're sitting across the table from, Rachel Den Hollander's mom and dad, and the dad is near tears as he's describing to you how wrought with guilt he is that he couldn't save his daughter from being sexually assaulted. You know, good luck with that. Um, it's it's hard not to get invested, and frankly, uh, just from a professional standpoint, I think that's a good thing uh, because you know there are plenty of times I've been sad. I mean, I'm my kids make fun of me. I'm a pretty emotional guy. I'm known to cry <laughs> at cheesy mm-hmm. movies. This stuff has moved me to tears uh, repeatedly, uh, and, and I'm not mentioning all that to any way, uh, you know, suggest that what I'm going through is even remotely close to what these families are going through. It's just a, it's just a different kind of uh, hurt, I guess, when you think about the dark st- side of the human condition. But the other side of the coin is, you know, after moments like that, you, you come away just with this, at least I do, and I know Dan does as well, he's my soulmate in this regard, you just come away with this unbelievable sense of we need to do right by these people. Mm. You know, we need we, we need to do our jobs and do do them really well because, damn it, they deserve it. Yeah, it's a, a brief story to that end. I, I remember being at in another interview as we were reporting out the extra details of the book, and uh, I think John and I both had moments like this actually, where we were talking to gymnasts who explained to us on, on separate occasions that just being there and talking to us and sharing their story meant that that night they were going to have terrible nightmares and they were going to relive the trauma of this kind of thing. 
And I think both of us had a moment when we were told that, that it sinks in, that like even them coming to speak to us is a sacrifice that these women made. And so at a certain point, sure, yeah, you're, you're frustrated, you're sad, you're, uh, you're enraged at some of the things you're hearing and reporting and, and slogging through every day as we were writing it. But I think the overwhelming thing that, that John and I both felt over and over again as we were writing this is that we were grateful that these women were willing to give us their time and make the sacrifice of reliving some of the worst moments of their lives. And they did it so that their stories could be shared with a lot of other people and hopefully someone can learn from it. So I think we always approached it with a sense of gratitude and the sense, as John said, of great responsibility, that if they're going to give up their well-being to have this story told, then we damn better well tell it the right way. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's super important work. I'm I'm so glad that you guys have done it, and and the book um, hopefully will have great sales, and you'll have the opportunity to speak more to it. Um, sometimes the biggest key for some of these things is just to shine a light on how it all happened and why, and hopefully people then will be able to moving forward, you know, realize their own role in stopping things like this or not being a part of the enabling of it, just by understanding how how these sort of manipulations work, and then also how institutions tend to protect themselves. Um, it's, it's, it's complicated stuff. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people are still stuck in the mode where they would rather not dive deep into understanding it. They would rather just, you know, push back using the traditional uh, victim blaming techniques or, or ideas of um, not starting by believing, basically. So thank you guys so much for, for giving me some time and, and talking to me about it. Sarah, thank you for giving us the time. I mean, you've been a consistent voice at ESPN for this story. And, um, it's not lost on us, and it shouldn't be lost on any of your listeners either. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, greatly appreciate it. And we know you've done a lot of work uh, both in this story and elsewhere, so it's uh, something that we, we both feel is really important, and hopefully sports is a way to, to spread that message to people that might not otherwise hear it. Agreed. Is there anything else you guys want to add? Is there anything I didn't ask you about or something that you feel like is worth you know sliding in somewhere? I think we need to get deeper into this whole Irish virus thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, as, that's as much as I'm ever going into that. The podcast for another time. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week is going to be quick. It's ice in drinks at a bar. I'm ordering the drink, not the ice. Of course, I want the drink to be cold, but presumably I'm going to drink it fast enough that if you put somewhere between two and four ice cubes in the drink, it will remain cold long enough for me to enjoy it. I know you're saving money by filling the cup with ice till it's practically overflowing and then finding the tiny little crevices still remaining in the cup to put the alcohol that I'm overpaying for. I don't care if you're saving money. Give me less ice. Give me more drink. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because especially when it's a crowded bar, I feel then that I have to order two drinks because the amount of ice that you put it and how quickly I'm going to drink it. I wait in line. I stand behind a bunch of people. I ask. This is not as quick as I thought it was going to be because it turns out I'm pretty angry about this. I wait in line. There's a bunch of people in front of me. I finally order my drink. You fill it with 8,000 ice cubes and one drop of alcohol. I finish it instantly. I start sucking on the alcohol-filled cubes, and then I immediately have to get back in line. Or sometimes I get two drinks, and then I drink them too fast, and then I'm overserved, and it's actually your fault, not mine, because of the ice. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. A reasonable amount of ice in my drink, please. Two to four ice cubes. There, I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate, and review, and leave your dilemma in your review. Maybe I'll solve it on the podcast. 
Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 